1: Once you start reading about the massacre, and I started digging a little deeper and deeper, uh, you really get into the world of of complex politics and and, uh, ethnic, racial issues going back and forth, religious issues going back and forth, and there's a complexity that goes into this thing that just was fascinating.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Sterner discussing his article on the Nadenhutten massacre, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Eric Sterner, a Journal of the American Revolution contributor specializing in the American Revolution in the West. Today, he's going to discuss with us his article focusing on what is really one of the most horrific moments of the American Revolution, the Nadenhutten Massacre. One of the things I always like to talk about, and I'm someone who has a bias In the uh, western theater of the American Revolution Is how Battlefields In our current world The way we preserve them The way we think about them To me Are like scars Scars reminding us that The revolution really happened I mean after all Isn't that what a scar is on your body Right? It's a reminder that A terrible trauma of the past Actually occurred even though the pain uh, and anguish is largely gone. The sting, we might say. And the Nanhuton Massacre is one of those events late in the war that has a way of traumatizing a, a region. So if you're not familiar with it, it's one of these terrible occurrences, uh, which happen so frequently in the Western theater where uh Native peoples are misidentified uh, or misjudged to have, having had participated in a, in a series of events previously in the war, uh, and innocent people die. It's also a case that shows what happens when people take the law or what they perceive to be the dispensing of justice into their own hands. Uh, it could just be straight-up murder. Hey, however you want to look at it, that's what history is, right? Interpretation. Any way you, you interpret this event, it was bloody, it was terrible. Many innocent people died, and many, many people did heinous things. So, when we hear Eric Sterner talk today, he's a very bright guy. I think you'll be impressed. Uh, he works for the government, right? So, he better be smart. Uh, but when you hear him talk... And especially describing the events of the massacre. Uh, I think there's a degree of solemnity there. I think it's a sobering affair because we like to pound our chests a lot of times when we talk about the American Revolution, particularly uh, if it's a major patriot victory and you're here in the United States. But this is one of those events where there really isn't a winner and everybody loses something. Of course, the people who lost the most were the ones that were murdered. So, on this episode, I normally say sit back and relax, uh, but really listen carefully, attentively, and allow yourself to reconsider the general narrative of the revolution. Because when you get into the West, it's a whole different world. Anyway, enjoy our interview with Eric Sterner. Eric Sterner, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, the invitation.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Well, uh, I'm a transplanted Midwesterner. Uh, I've been living in the Washington area for about 35 years. Came out here to go to school. I got a uh, bachelor's in, believe it or not, Soviet studies. (laughs) And then I went to graduate school for a master's in security policy. Decided I loved it so much go back and got one in political science. And I spent most of my career working in national security and aerospace. So I've worked for Congress, DOD, NASA, uh, industry, and think tanks. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to sort of switch gears and try to focus on sort of my first love, which was history, and, and uh, go into that more with a lot more effort and a lot more freedom than i would had in the past. So that's where I'm at and what I'm doing now.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of a... I backed into it. Um, I, I was thinking about writing something on George Rogers Clark and his Illinois campaign. So I just started collecting material. And one of the things I came across was an account uh, of the torture and execution of Colonel William Crawford. And I thought, who the heck is this guy? Because his, his execution was extraordinarily brutal. Just really nasty. It's kind of the nightmarish stuff. And uh, that led me to do a, a, a longer piece and some research into the, his campaign, which brought him to the Western Sandusky, which led to his execution in the summer of 1782. And I, as I'm reading and studying and writing about it, everything kept coming back to uh, part of the brutality real, was was related to or the result of the you know, Nutt Massacre. So I said, okay, i got to go understand the massacre if I want to understand the Crawford campaign to explain this guy's execution. Uh, and once you start reading about the massacre, and I started digging a little deeper and deeper, uh, you really get into the world of, of complex politics and, and uh, uh, ethnic, racial issues going back and forth, religious issues going back and forth, and there's a complexity that goes into this thing uh, that just was fascinating. Uh, so I sort of got the bug and just kept reading about it, studying it.
0: What was the state of the frontier war in 1781 and 1782?
1: Uh well, it's a good question the for most of the war from 1775 up through 1781 is just kind of this long slow process I'd argue of people picking sides. Um, it's it's not it didn't happen as quickly in the west as it happened in the east. Um, and I'm particularly referring here to the Ohio Indian tribes and uh, some of the Great Lakes tribes. Uh, They were inclined to sit this thing out at the beginning. They wanted to see who was going to win, or they wanted to see who had the upper hand, who could make the best deal for the Indians, which was a rational and predictable thing to do. But between, say, 1775, 1776, and 1781, you've got this slow process of, of... the Indian nations picking sides, and by and large, they pick the British side. The British can offer them the best deal. They can add, they can offer them gunpowder, weapons, food, things that will help them uh, help help them prevent uh, frontier settlers from continuing to move westward, which is one of their big goals. Uh, if you get to 1781, you got a situation. You know, the Western tribes are more or less unified against the Americans. Um, Unfortunately, the American House is in complete disorder. Uh, Continental officers and the Continental Forces there are are thin, unable to protect the frontier, um, and generally dependent on the Virginia and Pennsylvania militia in the upper Ohio Valley. Uh, The Pennsylvania militia um, generally is not very well organized. Everything is organized by the county, um, but they're kind of unreliable from the Continental standpoint. The Virginia militia is a little bit stronger, uh, a little bit more consistent. They've got a more uh, established tradition of using and deploying militia forces. Um, But Virginia's focus is shifting further and further west into the Kentucky territory, where they've had a lot of success with George Rogers Clark. Um, And they seem to be more willing to put more resources into that area because people are just flooding into Kentucky. So they've got more resources to use. So you've got the situation in the East where the Continentals are unhappy with the Pennsylvania militia, the Pennsylvanians are unhappy with the Continentals, and the Virginians have sort of gotten to the point where they're just like not interested in anybody in the upper Ohio Valley. They're more focused on the farther West.
0: The people of the Delaware Nation had somewhat divided loyalties throughout the Revolution. I think that's important to understand. Uh, Could you explain their alignment during the 1780s? By
1: 1781, they've pretty much all declared for the British. Um, Throughout the war, the Delaware were the most inclined to remain neutral or even side with the Americans. You've got three main divisions, uh, the turkey, turtle, and and wolf divisions, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, The turkey and the turtle have, have made this decision at the beginning of the war that, look, we've been to war twice now against those settlers in the East, French and Indian War. We sided with the French. We lost. Pontiac's War. We decided we sided with the Great Lakes Indians. We lost. And the Americans haven't gone away, so we've got to try a different approach here. So the Turkey and the Turtle, in particular, are looking for a better deal from the Americans at this point. The Wolf Division, or Fratry, is still got a nativist strain in it, and doesn't trust the Americans as far as they can throw them, um, given their history of sort of being pushed farther and farther west. Uh, it's the Iroquois who are doing the pushing, by the way. <laughs> so the Wolf Clan is more inclined to side with the British and move west to be closer to the Western tribes and perhaps participate in the war. And the Turkey and Turtle are more inclined to side with the Americans. Uh, you finally get this internal split within the tribe. It becomes more formal, for lack of a better way to put it, in 1778 over the Treaty of Fort Pitt where the Wolf just sort of pick up their stuff, and they move west. They move out to the Sandusky River. They're going to join with the uh, um, the British, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, the Turkey and Turtle remain behind, but they're looking to the Americans to protect them from the British and the Great Lakes Indians who have been threatening the Delaware all through the war at this, to, at this point to join them or else. Um, so the Turkey and Turtle want an American fort in their territory to protect them. Uh, The Americans can't deliver. Um, So by 1781, those last two clans of the Delaware have sort of thrown in the towel on the Americans, who have been uh, more than disappointing when it comes to protecting the Delaware from the Western tribes, and they join the British too. So the Delaware go through this long period of trying to remain neutral, Facing through these internal or dealing with these internal splits, finally giving up on the Americans and ending up moving west to join the British.
0: You touched on this a little bit already, uh, but maybe some further explanation. The war in the West was very different than the war in the East, especially with the armies. How was the Patriot War effort organized in the West?
1: Uh, well, kind of. It's it's curious that. It's beginning of the war, Virginia and Pennsylvania both have conflicting claims, as you well know, to the forks of the Ohio, the area around Pittsburgh, southwest Pennsylvania. Um, The Virginians won it. They just basically made a preemptive move to take it just before Dunmore's war, right before the revolution. Uh, The Pennsylvanians couldn't stop them. So by the time the war breaks out, by the time the revolution breaks out, you've got competing counties over in competing governments from both states over the same territory. So if you were a a person living in southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, I think I'm going to get a better ruling from a Virginia judge. I'm going to go to a Virginia judge. If I'm going to get a better ruling in something, I'm going to go to a Pennsylvania judge. Um, So there's a lot of sorting out of different uh, land claims to be done and a lot of uh, overlapping uh, claims of government authority um so the organization is a little bit chaotic uh on top of this you've got the continental authorities which are basically limited to fort Pitt. um as i said they can't really get much in the way of resources from the east so they often depend on those different militia groups uh from the same territory uh there's a funny thing here where at one point uh Uh, I think General Hand, uh, Brigadier General Hand, who's who's arrived from the east to to command Fort Pitt, uh, is sending casualty reports from the same area, but it's got two different county names, one a Virginia name, one a Pennsylvania name, and he's sending the same casualty reports. You know, this county lost this many people, this county lost this many people, and it's the same county. Uh, So I don't know if he's double counting. Or if he's just <laughs> deciding that these people are Virginians and those people are Pennsylvanians, so therefore I'm going to report them that way. Um, so they they're not organized particularly well.
0: What were some of the previous flashpoints between these two groups in the Ohio country?
1: Well, the things that that uh, in researching this article and and doing some more. Uh, some deeper dives here into the region for me is the thing that surprises me is how much animosity remains from the French and Indian war and Pontiac's war, um, for settlers living in central and Western Pennsylvania, those were nightmare experiences. Um, and this animosity that, that they have towards Indians and they don't discriminate among different Indian tribes here. Um, means that that a lot of these settlers and a lot of these folks uh, are just primed um, to attack Indians. Uh, the reverse is also true, so it doesn't take much. Um, and, of course, you've got um, murders up and down the Ohio that were sort of uh, preemptive to Donmore's war, in which Don, uh, Virginia fought the Shawnee over control of uh, what is now, I guess, West Virginia. Um the thing that really comes out in uh, the Van uh, Hutton massacre is this persistent animosity among Pennsylvanians towards the Moravians. Uh, the Moravians are uh, they're members of the Church of the United Brethren, which had its heartland originally in the Moravian province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire around Prague. So when they get to the Western Hemisphere, they're just basically called Moravians, even though they're, they're uh, members of the Church of the United Brethren. Um, What people don't often realize is that when the Paxton boys, uh, who committed all these murders during the Pontiac's War uh, of Conestoga Indians, uh, which some people have have heard of, uh, when those Paxton boys marched on Philadelphia to demand satisfaction from the Pennsylvania government, they were really marching uh, after some Moravian Indians, Indians who converted to Christianity, who were housed in the Philadelphia barracks for their own protection that gets lost um but you saw in that event in 1763 four it's escaping me at the moment um this focus of sort of the frontier families frontier men focused on the moravian community that wasn't the only incident um uh, of animosity directed at the Moravian Indians, uh, but that was the most intense. The Moravian Indians and their, their missionaries keep moving west. Eventually they end up on the Muskingum and the Ohio Territory, um, but that's probably one of the things that, that really stands out. Um, you move from there and you get to um, uh, the war itself, developing in in the Ohio Territory. Uh, The American campaign against Canada had cut off British supplies and their ability to supply the Indians uh, in the West. So that enabled the Indians, you know, they really didn't want to pick a side. But once the Canadian campaign fails and the St. Lawrence opens up, uh, Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton issues a famous edict, and he basically has... Mobilizes the Western tribes to go to war in the middle of seventeen seventy seven uh, and you see the scale and the scope of Indian attacks on the on the on the uh, frontier just dramatically increase, and that 's a major turning point too when it comes to the Indian War, from the sense of uh, <coughs> excuse me the continentals have tried to maintain neutrality of the tribes there's some raids. Um, so it's, it's sort of on this knife edge of whether or not the Continental strategy will succeed or fail. But after Hamilton unleashes his Indians, for lack of a better way to put it, um, uh, there's no ability to protect the frontier.
0: The topic of your article is Nadenhutton. Tell us what that place was and who lived there.
1: Well, uh, it's one of three villages on the Muskingum River, which is a tributary the Ohio. Um, the Moravian communities were chased out of eastern Pennsylvania, a or better way to put it moved into the Muskingum at the invitation of the Delaware in 1772 and they settled in a town called New Sch- Schoenbrunn uh, which like, means fine spring and uh, it's a polyglot of languages and tribes living there but it's mostly Delaware but there's a, great, a large number of Mohicans and as Schoenbrunn gets crowded um, the Mohicans set out, and they settled Ned and Hutton, which is further down the river. Um, so these are based, they're all primarily Indian towns. There are a few missionaries and a few missionary families living there, but they're primarily European towns. Uh, they're laid out on European lines, so uh, they have a standard grid. Uh, each family's got a clearly plotted garden. There's cattle. There's fields outside town. It looks like any frontier village that you'd find, um, for lack of a better way to put it, whites living in. Um, it doesn't follow. It do, they don't follow sort of the, the haphazard patterns that you see in a lot of Native American nations. Um, and indeed, at one point, uh, uh, one of the missionaries, uh, John Heckelwelder, uh, explains very clearly that there was no mistaking the, quote, Moravian Indians for Indians. Uh, they wore their hair short, they dressed in black garb. Uh, they didn't dress, behave, act, and or look like Native Americans, as the white settlers were accustomed to seeing Native Americans. Um, so in the villages themselves, people get up, crack at dawn. They're pastoral farmers. Um, they're, uh, they're not following the rhythms of nature and moving their villages with the seasons. They're set. These places are static. Um, they've established fields, established uh, pasture land. They're raising cattle and pens. Uh, it looks like a European village. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of what's going on in, in 1772. As the war starts, those villages aren't safe. Um the uh, Indians the Moravian Indians move towards a new town called Lichtenau, uh which is closer to a the uh, Delaware capital at Kisho Cushoct- what is now Kishocton ohio um eventually things settled down, and the Indians the Moravian Indians move back and establish a third village called Salem, all along the Muskingum River, so they've got three of them they follow this pattern uh they sing. They have church services, they sing hymns in their own native languages, which is one of the things the Moravian uh, missionaries were famous for, is is translating things into native languages for folks to understand. Um, And they generally describe themselves as spiritually happy, Um, although there is a constant threat (laughs) given that the war is all around them.
0: It sounds like a pretty peaceful place. Why was it a target for the Patriots?
1: Uh, well, you've got a couple things going on. Uh, you've got that longstanding suspicion of Moravians and those Indians. Uh, there is some evidence that Indians who had converted to Christianity under the Moravian missionaries during the French and Indian War and in Pontiac's War had participated in raids against whites. Um, Certainly, the raiding Indians had families among the Moravian Indians um, and circulated regularly through Moravian villages. That's happening during the Revolution. So as hard as the missionaries tried to establish rules to exclude warriors from their villages, there's reason to believe that they weren't entirely successful the Western tribes drew their warpath straight into Delaware Territory and straight through the Moravian villages. It was a strategic move on their part. One, it was convenient, uh, but more importantly, from their standpoint, they were trying to separate um, the missionaries from their congregations and make those congregations the target of white retaliation for Indian raids. Uh, the reason they were doing that is they were trying to recruit warriors from among the Moravian congregations. So it's sort of a, uh, we'll, get the, we'll get the Americans to attack you because they'll think you've participated in the raids. So they drove their warpaths right through the Moravian villages. Um, they would often just show up in town. The, way, the Western tribes would just show up in town and make camp and the Moravians would feed them. Um, Sort of by hook and crook, if you didn't feed them, they'd take it. Uh, So the Moravians had to, for lack of a better way to put it, um, if somewhat begrudgingly. Um, But that, of course, turned these villages into forward operating bases for raiding parties, uh, which the Americans knew. Uh, The other thing that's going on here is um, that by 1781, the white settlers have concluded that the Moravian villages themselves are a problem for all those reasons. Uh, and what they don't know is that the Moravi- the Delaware Indians and Moravian missionaries have been providing intelligence to the Americans all throughout the war. So they've been, they've been telling them uh... uh, passing information about raiding parties moving through the area when they leave the sandusky when they hit the muskingum where they're bound in american territory but that's all secret so most settlers don't know it it's limited to a very small number of continental authorities and some state authorities at fort pitt so if you're just a regular farmer uh, who serves in the militia on occasion see your neighbor's house burned down, you see the uh, warrior, the raiding party retreat through the Moravian villages, um, and you know that the Moravian villages uh, have been feeding these war parties, you know you've got a problem uh, on your doorstep. And that's what makes them the focus of some animosity during the war. In April of 1781, uh, Colonel Daniel Broadhead, who is in command at Fort Pitt, leads a campaign against the Delaware who have just decided to side with the British. And during that campaign, uh, he stops outside one of the Moravian villages, I think it's Salem, and he wants to make sure there are no Moravian Indians wandering around, because he doesn't want his guys to accidentally kill these Moravian Indians. He's still trying to maintain some sense of of a peaceful relationship. Um, While he's there, uh, a battalion of militia essentially announces it's going to march on the Moravian villages and destroy them. Uh, Whether that means it's going to kill everybody there, just destroy the villages and drive the uh, people who live there west, or take those people and move them to Fort Pitt, um, is an open question at that point. Uh, Broadhead doesn't want them to leave, and he and a Virginia militia colonel basically, two battalions face down this, this sort of, Uh, not quite mutinous, but uh, uh, anti Moravian battalion down, um, and they move on and finish their campaign. So at that point, you've got a little bit of authority from the Continentals capable of stopping the Pennsylvania militia from acting. November 1781, uh, the Pennsylvania militia organizes militia, again marches on uh, Gneton-Hutton directly. Uh, they do this, they have authority to do it. Uh, to their surprise, the Moravians fall, they're not there. Uh, for in, over the course of the summer, the Western tribes had shown up and dragged the Moravian Indians off into western Ohio, put them on a reservation, for lack of a better term. Um, but the Pennsylvania militia finds a few people hanging around, rounds them up, takes them back to Fort Pitt, Continental officers there are shocked and promptly let them go. Um, so by 1781, in the summer, you've got this sort of rumor mill circulating in in western Pennsylvania that these places have got to go, that these towns have just got to go, um, and that's sort of the the trigger, or the the uh, the gun is primed and and aimed and so on. Uh, by the spring of 1782. So that's kind of the the key factors that make those towns a target.
0: Tragedy strikes on March 8th. What happens?
1: Um, Well, you've got a situation here. Uh, As I mentioned, the Western tribes dragged the Moravians off into western Ohio in 1781. Um, they're starving over through the winter. So in February, uh, the Indians, the Moravian Indians, not their missionaries, take the initiative and said, look, we've left food behind on the Muskingum. We're going to send people back, and we're going to get that food, uh, and we're going to bring it to the West or put it in some more secure places so we can draw on it since we're not allowed to leave the Sandusky. Uh, and about 150 men, women, and children set out for the Muskingum to go recover this uh, mostly dried corn uh, and some farm implements and so on. Um, this coincides with a break in the war- in warm weather. Uh, they get a little bit of, uh, of a break in the cold, and that leads to some early raids and some rather nasty murders on the frontier. Um, traditional storytelling here is is that um, Pennsylvania families got together uh, basically the men who would have been in the militia uh, and decided that they're going to pursue these raiders Um, and they meet uh, on the Ohio River I think on March 3rd cross the Ohio River and march on Mayden Hutton in theory they're pursuing raiders Personally, I think there's enough uh, factoid, you know, little facts here and there that suggest that now they, they were, were going to do this, and it was the weather that gave these folks the opportunity. Again, the traditional story is that these whites who marched on these villages were marching as the militia. Uh, it doesn't look to be the case. You can't find uh, anything, you can't find formal orders dispatching them, which you always found in a militia action, or almost always found. You can't find claims of pay or damages from people who participated, made on the state of Pennsylvania, or, for that matter, the Continental Congress. Um, So I suspect they marched. It was one of these things where these folks knew each other. They were neighbors. They decided they were going to act on the desires that they'd had in uh, 1781 to remove the threat, and they knew they were not going to be allowed to do it if they acted under the authority of the Pennsylvania Militia or the Continental Congress, so they did it on their own. March 6th, they arrive outside Hutton late in the day. Um, what they do is, is they, uh, a man named Colonel David Williamson, who's a colonel in the Pennsylvania Militia, uh, is their commanding officer, and he divides his group uh, up into three columns. They're going to approach the town on March 7th. One's going to approach the north, uh, cross over the Muskingum into the fields, which are on the west side of the river. One is going to march directly on the town, and then one is going to march on the town from the south. Um, The column that gets to the river on the north side, uh, they don't have any boats. (laughs) They can't get across. So what they end up doing is somebody sees what they think is a canoe. Uh, it turns out to be a water trough. <laughs> he swims the river, brings the water trough back. They pile their weapons into uh, this water trough and then take turns ferrying themselves across the river in the north. Once they get across, they reassemble, um, and they start marching south on the west bank of the Muskingum River, which is this part of the river is now called the Tuscarawas. Um And they encounter uh, a young man named uh, Joseph Shabash. His father is actually an Englishman who has worked with the Moravian missionaries for a long time. Uh, They immediately shoot him. Uh, The shot breaks his arm. They run up, hit him in the head with a a tomahawk, and then scalp him. Um, His brother-in-law is standing not too far away, and he hides The column on the west side of the river starts marching south, and as they come, they're rounding people up in the fields. Um, Jacob Shabash, who is now deceased Joseph's brother-in-law, watches the column march by. um, He watches them shoot a man in a canoe in the river, and he just hightails it out of there. So he's one of our first witnesses to survive uh, events there the early part of the the attack. Um, The second column approaches the town uh, from due east. They encounter Joseph Shabasha's wife. He's already been killed. They spot her. This second column spots her by the river, and they immediately kill her. For some reason, uh, the Indians in town uh, and in the fields don't seem to be under the impression that they're under attack. Now, uh, the primary source for the interpretation of this is is, um, uh, the missionaries, uh, and they state that the Indians believe their innocence uh, would protect them. So the militia, not the militia, the white raiders, for lack of a better term, that's what I'm trying to get in the habit of using, um, basically rounds everybody up in town, uh, and they're making a great show of being friendly uh, and why shouldn't they be uh, they have interacted with these uh, Indian communities since before the war and they know each other they heard these folks into town and um, slowly disarm them they said look we're gonna take you to Fort Pitt you'll be safe at Fort Pitt you'll be fed at Fort Pitt um, and remember these folks the reason they're on the Muskingum is they're hungry So it's not quite a party, but everybody seems to be doing their best to get along. As this is going on, a man named John Martin and his son are moving caches out beyond the fields. They see the white folks in the towns. They see people getting along. And John Martin decides that um, he's going to go tell the people at Salem that, hey, the Pennsylvania militia is here. They're going to take us to Pittsburgh, which is what he's thinking. And we'll all go be safe there. So he heads down, to, he sends his son into Gnadenhutton and he goes down to Salem. Convinces the folks in Salem that, you know, the militia's here to take us away to Fort Pitt where we can all finally be fed and safe. Uh, the folks, the Indians in Salem, dispatch uh, some of their own folks to uh, Gnaden Hutton to confirm the story. Uh, the militia, or the not the militia, the, 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 the raiders, the white folks in Nettenhut and say, yes, we're actually here to take it for a pit. That's great. Why don't you go get the people from Salem to come join us? So Martin and some uh, settlers go down to Salem. And after they disappear for Salem, um, the people, the white settlers remaining in Hutton separate the men from the women and the boys. Bind them, uh, and then herd the populations at separate buildings. The, the Salem population eventually arrives at Nettleton, and, Hut, and then they are quickly um, treated the same way. Uh, they're separated, bound, and segregated um, in these two separate buildings. Now, clearly, they know that something is going on, and in the entire night of March 7th. Um, Uh, the the white raiders here are just hurling uh, calling them names accusing them of participating in raids uh, saying that look, this this shovel that you have was taken from my friend's farm or that was something that I lost after uh, an Indian raid on on my homestead that dress belonged to uh, so-and-so's wife and so on now the Hutton Indians, Moravian Indians were very peaceful and active traders. Um, and they, like I said, dressed like Europeans. So of course, they've got farming implements. Of course, they've got Western or, or English clothing and uh, that's how they lived. So they profess their innocence. Um, but it really is kind of pointless at this point. Uh, and they spend the night praying and singing hymns. And that's how the story goes that they've realized that, that, uh, they're going to be executed. They're going to be killed. The guilt of of their guilt, as far as the White Raiders go, uh, the guilt of the Indians seems to be conventionally accepted without a formal trial. So in the morning, Williamson lines up his soldiers and to decide on the sentence, mercy or death. Uh, Those who favor mercy have to step forward, and only 16 to 18 men out of between 80 and 160 raiders, it's not real clear, say that mercy is the preferred thing here uh, for us to do. So clearly the sentence is death. The next question is, how do we do it? Some people want to, some of the raiders want to just burn the houses with the prisoners inside them. Others want to scalp them as proof that they've killed these Indians. Um, When you can't agree, uh, you choose both. And what they decide to do is they basically take uh, mallets, hammers, beat these people to death inside the buildings, uh, scalp them, uh, and then set the buildings on fire. Um, This goes on probably in the late afternoon of of March 8th. Um, There are a few open-ended questions that uh, get told, uh, but when you do do start digging into primary resources, uh, they aren't as as confident in the facts as as the story has been told. Um, Allegedly, the first person to go is a man named Abraham. Abraham may have, in fact, been a warrior uh, or uh, a lapsed Christian. Uh, his hair was longer. He no longer dressed in the European fashion. He uh, presumably uh, repents before he's killed, and he's killed first because he's thought to have been a raid, a ra- uh, an Indian raider. Um, some folks argue that uh, some of the Indians were taken down to the river uh, and executed there. Uh, others say that no, everybody was executed in the houses. Um, what happened to the folks who objected, or favored mercy, the raiders who favored mercy? Did they gather by the river? Which is one popular story. Um, uh, one of them, appear- a boy, apparently escapes, and one of those raiders who favored mercy um, takes him home and raises, protects him and takes him home and raises him as his son. Uh, Colonel Williamson's whereabouts are unknown. Uh, Some accounts have him down at the river with the people who objected to to the death sentence. Uh, Others have him up by the buildings where one woman who's about to be killed throws herself at his feet. Uh, Hard to tell exactly which story to put more credence in. They seem to be, you know, these are second-generation, second-hand stories that are past oral history that's passed down uh, on the frontier. Uh, finally, the the work of the the murders is is pretty much done. Now, there's always survivors in a massacre, and in this case, two boys survived. Uh, one of them uh, escapes from a burning house. Uh, he's with the he's in the women's building, and another boy is escaping behind him. Uh, but as the building's burning, uh, the first boy gets out, hides in the woods, and the second, he's been scalped, he's bleeding from his head, and he's probably burned, gets out of the building through a basement window, hides in the woods. The boy who was following him got stuck in the window and burned to death. Another boy who was probably with the men, um, his scalping didn't kill him either. He woke up, so another young man across the way from him start to rise up, Uh, a a white man came in and and beat that boy to death again. He thought he'd killed him the first time, made sure of it the second time. So this boy plays dead, waits a little while, uh, then manages to sneak out the door in the night of March 8th, makes his way to the woods. The two of them uh, eventually follow the path back towards Sandusky, and they catch up with um, the party from Schoenbrunn. Uh, which was not involved in the massacre. They had actually received word to return to the Sandusky to help the missionaries prepare for a summons to Detroit that they had received from um, the British commander there. The party at Schoenbrunn had also sent um, messengers down to Gnadenhutten and Salem, and they saw... Uh, some portions of the massacre, they saw some of the dead bodies from early on the seventh, and they saw the towns burning. Uh, so they concluded pretty quickly that that people had, had had either been some people had been killed, and they took off without waiting around to to see what else had gone down, what else had happened. So that's kind of the nasty events of March seventh and eighth.
0: Events like this will reverberate for decades afterwards. So what was the aftermath of the massacre? Uh,
1: Well, it unifies the Western tribes in ways that they hadn't been quite unified before, and it gives uh, New Life's the wrong phrase, but I can't think of a better one, to their animosity towards Americans, their hatred of Americans. Um. It also leads a lot of these folks living on the white folks living on the frontier to go. Hey, we've had just great success. Uh, we've finally eliminated this threat. Uh, we want to. We want to go back and and march on Sandusky. We're going to take the war to the Indians. Um, basically, the Wyandotte, um, the Potawatomi, the folks living out in that direction, including some of the Delaware who'd migrated there the year before. So they get up a campaign together uh, under the command of William Crawford, uh, and they march west, uh, and they get soundly defeated. Uh, Crawford, of course, is captured, and the the intensity of his torture, uh, as is as uh, the intensity and and brutality of the torture that the Western Indians applied to all prisoners uh, is is part of the result of of their anger, their demand for blood. Uh, a form of justice in response to the massacre at Naden Hutton. Um, those are the, the the two immediate things on the frontier. Uh, Eastern elites are horrified. Um, so basically, George Washington, even Ben Franklin, and far off Paris, this is the massacre at Naden Hutton is this terrible thing, and and. Uh, it, Everybody wishes that you know the brutality of war could be washed away, so people couldn't do these barbaric things to one another. It's it's uh, uh, because so many women and children were killed. This is seen as a particularly uh, offensive form of warfare. Um, by that I mean it's a, offensive to uh, nature, God, the rules of war, whatever you want to call it. Um, the British and Western tribes are similarly outraged. Um, there are some folks who will date the Hutton Massacre as the first big uh, event setting the pattern of, of uh, Indian and white conflict um, for the rest of the next 200 years. I don't buy that. I, I think Indians and, and white folks had figured out how to be incredibly brutal to one another long before the Hutton Massacre um, and didn't require that event to um, generate hatred afterwards, Um, but that's sort of the fallout right there is is you get Crawford's campaign, you get his execution, and you get everybody upset about uh, how bad things have gotten.
0: To you, what does this event reveal to us about the American Revolution as a whole?
1: Um, As as you said, the the focus is often on the East, and uh, we forget that Uh, It was a different war in the West, Um, that that you didn't have uh, large armies, that uh, 500 men was considered a large army in the West, Um, and it was rare to see one that large. Um, That uh, continental authority was extraordinarily weak in the West so that people who lived there were often left to their own devices in terms of how they wanted to conduct the war. Uh, and that applies both to whites and Indians. Um, government authority is, is, is poor, and when government authority is poor, you get the situation where people are find it easier to commit atrocities because there's no such thing as discipline. Um, they didn't have the training of Valley Forge. They didn't have the common experience of fighting as an army outside Philadelphia or, or, um, at Yorktown or on at different points along the Hudson. So, uh, it's a, it's a smaller war. It looks like a guerrilla war. It's even more brutal than I think you'd, you'd, you'd see in New Jersey or South Carolina, um, where it's neighbor fighting neighbor. And you got to remember in a lot of cases, the, the folks who committed the massacre at Ned Hutton knew their victims. Uh, certainly, some of the folks who killed Crawford knew him personally and had known him for 20 years. Um, so, this is really a, a, not just a civil war, but uh, sort of a, a, a blood war, the kind of things that, that we, we, frankly, we saw in Yugoslavia in the 90s, uh, where you just couldn't believe those kinds of things happened. Uh, that's exactly the kind of war that people fought.
0: Eric Sterner, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.